This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Hello and welcome to another episode of uh, From the Old Brewery, a podcast brought to you from the School of Language, Literature, Music and Visual Culture. And that's aimed at highlighting the research of uh, students and staff here at the school. My name is Ian Gross, I'm a PhD research student in creative writing and uh, joined today by three wonderful guests. Um, Professor Alison Lumsden, who's Regius Professor of English Literature at the University of Aberdeen, uh, Director of the Sir Walter Scott Research Centre and Honorary Librarian at Scott's former home at Abbotsford, where she's also a trustee of the Abbotsford Trust. Also joined by Anna uh, Fancitt, who is a research assistant at the centre, and Natalie Tal Harries, who is a research fellow, also working at the Walter Scott Research Centre here in Aberdeen. So Anna has published articles in the Scottish Literary Review and the Wenchin Review, as well as book chapters, blogs and teaching resources, building on her doctoral research on the significance of familial representation in the novels of Walter Scott and Jane Austen. In 2020, she was the winner of the Jack Medal, which is awarded annually for the best article on a subject related to reception or diaspora in Scottish literatures. And she's currently working on a Walter Scott companion for McFarlane's 19th century series, which is aimed at students, teachers and interested lay readers. Natalie is working on AHRC-funded Edinburgh edition of Walter Scott's Poetry Project in her post as a research fellow with the Centre. She's also an ECR fellow at the Institute of English Studies at the University of London, where she's been working on the late Indian influences of P.B. Shelley. Natalie's research interests are primarily focused on romantic poetry and she is particularly interested in the ways in which the varied and often esoteric reading and interests of romantic writers informed metaphysical exploration, transcendental experience and visionary expression in their poetry. So welcome all three. Thank Got you. through Thank that you. massive introduction there. <laughs> so um, again, welcome Ali and just wondered if you could start us off by telling us about the centre and its history and its its aims and some of the past projects and, and coming on to the current project that's involved in at the moment. Yes, so the Walter Scott Research Centre was established around 30 years ago and it was really established by my former colleague and Emeritus Professor David Hewitt uh, to support the work of the Edinburgh edition of Walter Scott's fiction, so the Edinburgh edition of the Waverley novels. And that was a project to edit all of Scott's fiction in 30 volumes. So that was why the centre was set up, really, to support that work. And that indeed was quite a task. Um, that involved returning to all the manuscripts, proofs and editions published in Scott's lifetime. And that was completed in 2012. But in the time between the centre being set up and 2012, obviously it meant that Aberdeen had also gained a reputation for Scott's studies through the work of the edition. And we'd acquired a wonderful collection of Scott materials, the Bernard C. Lloyd collection of Scott materials, which is now in the Sir Duncan Rice Library, and also become something of an international hub for Scott studies. So with the novels complete, we turned to editing Scott's poetry. And so the centre, among other things, is now supporting the, the editing of the Edinburgh edition of Walter Scott's poetry. So how did, you, how did you personally come, just for those people who don't know, how did you personally come to Scott and how did you get involved with the centre to become the director? Well, I was an undergraduate at Aberdeen in the 1980s um, and I studied some Scottish literature and I went to Edinburgh uh, to do a PhD on contemporary Scottish fiction. 
And while I was there in my first few months, I thought, well, I should really read some of the older stuff as well. So I did. And I thought, well, this is much more interesting than this modern, <laughs> modern material. So I ended up writing my PhD on Scott and James Hogg and Robert Louis Stevenson. Right. And I think this is maybe interesting for some of our, our postgraduate students to hear. In the last few months of my PhD, um, I applied for a teaching fellows post at Aberdeen, which I didn't get. But while I was being interviewed for that post, I was speaking to David Hewitt about my work on Scott. So six months later, when I had finished my PhD, David got in touch with me and said he had a six month job for a research fellow on the Edinburgh edition um, of Walter Scott's fiction, uh, the Waverley novels, and um, would I be interested in applying for it? So I did. Okay. And I thought, this is a six-month part-time job. <laughs> this will fill in a bit of time till I decide what I'm going to do. And um, yes, yeah, 11 years are. later, I was still in that post <laughs> in, in a much promoted position. And here I am now, <laughs> a life with Walter Scott. So <laughs> total fate, but a great trajectory. <laughs> yes, partly yeah. fate and partly serendipity. So we've got to say a big congratulations for the funding that you've got the HRC, which is an amazing, uh, cool million pounds. Um, and I wonder if you could tell us about that. You mentioned it briefly there, but could you tell us a bit more about that project and its, and its aims, about the poetry? Yeah. So when the novels were completed, um, we, we felt we should turn our attention to the poetry. I think it probably would have been impossible to start with the poetry. It might have been more logical to start with Scott's poetry and then move on to the novels because Scott wrote the majority of his poetry before he wrote his fiction. But I don't think there would have been any appetite for that. In some ways, the novels created an, a renewed interest in Scott, which facilitated the very idea of an edition of his poetry. So um, we began work on that um, with a pilot project, which was part of Ainsley Malkintosh's PhD project here at Aberdeen. She did a thesis on... Uh, an edition of Marmion, Scott's second long poem, and what that would look like. And that was working very much in collaboration with us to see whether, um, you know, what would need to be done, how it would be different from the novels, uh, how we would need to undertake a project like that. And Ainsley's work allowed us to see that, yes, that, that was a possibility. We moved on to have Carnegie funding for a pilot project and, and British Academy funding to test some of her findings on three other of Scott's poems. And that gave us the expertise, really, then to apply for HRC funding. Um, we had two volumes published by the time we applied for funding, Marmion and the Shorter Poems. So we'd established a kind of proof of concept. We'd shown we could do it. And we were fortunate enough to get the money from the HRC. That money is to edit a further five volumes of Scott's poetry. And when I say edit, maybe you'd like to hear a bit about what we yeah. actually do. Yeah, so um, what we're aiming to do is to try and restore Scott's work to the form in which it would have appeared at the time of publication had it not been subject to the kinds of pressures, um, speed, inaccuracies that emerged during that initial process. With the poetry and like the novels, we realised that Scott, through the first few editions of the poems, is actually improving his work mm -hmm. as well as it is deteriorating through the natural process of one text being transmitted to the other. We also realised that unlike um, 
the novels which are published anonymously. Scott is very public about his writing and publishing of poetry. His friends are chipping in, they're telling him what they think he should do. He's showing drafts of his poems, he's reading them aloud. And everybody under the sun seems to have an opinion about these poems. So there's an awful lot going on as the poems are appearing in their first early editions. And those editions are appearing very rapidly, within weeks of each other. And so in that initial creative process, Scott's still very actively engaged in the work, but it's simultaneously being improved by Scott and deteriorating. So what we're aiming to do is to get the best possible version of that text created during the initial creative process, as we call it. And we do that by going back to the manuscripts, um, the proofs, where they exist, and they don't really exist as far as we know for the poetry, and the editions published during Scott's lifetime, and also all the publishing correspondence and personal correspondence that we can find to build up a picture of what's going on. And so our primary aim is to establish that text, to record all the changes we've made to it as a result of that process, and then to provide Uh, the reader with the support they need to fully understand the text in the way of essays, emendation lists, glossaries, notes, maps, if required. So you can see there's a lot of work to be done, which is why we need that money and the wonderful assistance (laughs) of Anna and Natalie to do that. Um, We're also, though, very much in with the centre, our... Our long-term aim has always been not just to produce these editions, but also, in a sense, to um, recalibrate Scott in some way. Or or we sometimes use the analogy of retuning the harp of the north. That's a line from one of Scott's poems. It's a good line. So we're sort of fine-tuning Scott, who calls himself the harp of the north. And so we're also aiming to interpret Scott's work through critical work, through outreach work and activities to make it accessible and relevant for modern audiences. So the other half of our EHRC project is engaging new audiences, which is very much Anna's department of the project, which we have a specific um, aim that is funded by the EHRC to uh, to provide materials for schools to help them to engage with Scots poetry. But we do lots of other things as well. Um, It's uh, just going back to what you said about retuning the harp of the north. And so it's a restoration process is what I'm getting. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. So it's a process of restoration, but also you're saying recalibration. So in what way are you hoping to retune that? I think in some ways um, the recalibration is kind of uh, our reception of Scott and our understanding of him um, as a writer and as a poet because, as Ali says, there's been, you know, um, a lot of retained interest, I think, in the fiction and the novels, but his poetry, um, although very popular at the time when it was published, uh, more recently hasn't hasn't received very much critical attention. So um, it's sort of a process of restoring the work, but also, I suppose, retuning, retuning, sorry, in terms of our understanding of Scott and where we see him kind of within the canon and um, in relation to his contemporaries and other writers as well, I think. Yeah, because he's been through a few phases, Scott, hasn't he? He's gone from, you know, massively famous at the time to a little bit unpopular in kitsch almost, mm. and then and then he seemed to be coming back into the, into a sort of, the, 
into the fore, into the respected fore. I think that's that's true. I mean, really, Scott suffered from his popularity, mm. I think. Exactly. Um, and he was so popular at the time when he was writing. Uh, you know, he was the bestseller of his day. Um, he made a huge amount of money from his mm. creative work, something we would all kind of a, sort of be envious of, I think. And, uh, you know, he was offered the Point Laureateship, which he declined. You know, he was... Um, made Sir Walter Scott for his services to literature, essentially. And, and he really was internationally, not only in Scotland and, and, and Britain, but internationally, he was the leading writer yeah. of his day. And, and I think anybody who is that popular is going to, in some ways, reach a process of decline. I think mean, it's overexposure. The other thing I think that happens is that he's pressed into the services of Victorian sensibilities. You know, he's made far more, he's interpreted as being far more respectable and, and morally sound. And, he, you know, his, the element of adventure, which is one aspect of his work, is sort of used um, for the services of empire. Mm. And all that's really unfortunate. So that by the time you come to the beginning of the 20th century, I think people are just, partly sick to death of Scott, but also they have a kind of false interpretation of Scott. Although it's interesting that somebody like Virginia Woolf, you know, writes a brilliant essay called Illumination at Abbotsford, where she's speaking about the fact that um, that Scott is one of the first people to put gas lighting in his house. <laughs> but she's also speaking about the fact that Scott's work can illuminate things. So even mm. the modernists have a certain attraction to Scott, and you can guarantee they don't all read him. But he did fall from grace in the 20th century. and But I think in the last 30 years has, has had a bit of a revival. So that's, a re that's quite a challenge to, re to recalibrate him in the public view, I suppose. And Anna, your work's very much part of that, as Alison said. And what, what challenges are there for you to try and... I mean, to introduce modern young children to, um, you know, uh, an 18th century author, that's quite a task. How do you manage to, uh, what ways do you th are you looking to, to try and do that? So I use, uh, it's a great question, I use lots of different methods. I think one of the big challenges is that Scott's language is quite different mm -hmm. to what most children are exposed to today. And the age groups that I'm working with might not have read any 19th century literature at all, um, let alone any yeah. Scott. So I have a few different um, tactics. So the first one is choosing good pieces of literature, uh, good good extracts from the poems, <laughs> I should say, um, that can be taken in small sections yeah. and which are easily accessible. So there are some parts of the poems where you have to have read the whole canto to understand what's going on. And obviously I'm not going to use those extracts. I'm <laughs> going to use sh short little bits that can stand by themselves. Um, and then of course I try to create activities uh, fun, that are engaging, that relate to issues and ideas that the pupils might have in their own lives. Mm -hmm. And focus on the poetry itself in conversation with those other aspects. That's a hugely creative approach to what might seem from the outside as a sort of a slightly st stuffy, sort of stuck in an archive kind of uh, daily occupation. But what you're doing is quite a quite a creative and fun. Well, I think aspect. Scott is incredibly fun, and if we can find ways to help children experience that, then that's that's yeah. even better. It, could I? Could any of you give us a, a flavour of the kind of texts that you're dealing with? I mean. 
you mentioned there, you're choosing those small extracts to take into the schools. Would anybody, do anybody feel like <laughs> giving us a bit of Scott? I know Natalie and I both selected a couple of extracts before we came in we today. Did, yeah. um, do you want to? I think we've both got something from, uh, we both looked at a few lines from the Lay of the Last Minstrel. Is that one yeah. of the ones you're working on mm-hmm. at the moment as well? Um, so, uh, I mean, this, uh, I can read you a few lines from the Lay of the Last yeah. Minstrel if you like. It's uh, some of my favourite lines from the poem, a description of uh, Melrose Abbey by Moonlight. Um, but the way in which it's described, you kind of get this wonderful mixture of nature and supernatural and sort of spirituality all in just these few lines. So <laughs> um, I shall do my best to read it well. The moon on the east oriel shone through slender shafts of shapely stone by foliage tracery combined. Thou wouldst have thought some fairy's hand Twixt poplars straight, the osier wand, in many a freakish knot had twined, then framed a spell when the work was done, and changed the willow wreaths to stone. It's lovely, isn't it? So it is so romantic, isn't it? I mean, he's a romantic author and poet, but it really is the epitome of romance, isn't it? It's great. Yeah, um, I think it's maybe worth seeing a little bit about, about how that yeah. passage is contextualised because. You know, um, it, it, yes, it is romantic, and this is this description of Melrose Abbey by moonlight is one of the things that helps fire the Scottish tourist industry because everybody <laughs> wants to go and see Melrose by moonlight yeah. after they've read this this poem. Um, but there, it's so complex in that what actually is going on here is William of Deloraine has ridden through the landscape to um, Melrose, and as he's passing through the landscape, he a great speed, even though he's riding, is observing the fact that the landscape is closely associated with all these historical events. So it's not only a description of landscape, but it's a description of the way in which memory, history, the past and landscape are all combined. And mm-hmm. Scott's one of the first people, actually, to really... It's a in, contemporary in uh, that. theme, isn't very, it? Yeah. Very, very modern sort of idea. But then, in terms of what um, Anna's doing, it's great fun, because he's actually going there to dig up the body of the wizard Michael Scott mm. so he can retrieve the book of might, the magic <laughs> book which contains all these spells which are going to allegedly resolve the plot details. That sounds brilliant. <laughs> a film? A film? So it's gothic film. stuff yeah, as totally. well. Yeah. I think it's very filmic actually. Some of the ways that he transitions between scenes it blows my mind that he hasn't actually seen a film because yeah. they're very, very filmic mm. in the way that he does it. So in The Lay of the Last Minstrel, you often have um, sounds overlaid. So the minstrel will be telling the story and there will be a sound that will then merge with his telling and his time, which for yeah. me is, nice. yeah, nice. for me that's something that you get from cinema, but it's here yeah. before mm-hmm. cinema. So mm-hmm. Do you have, do you have that with you? Have you brought that along? I don't have that particular one oh, with me, I'm sorry. I have to look it up. Just remind me as well, Anna, of some of the fight scenes that you have with, um, you know, these kind of these chivalric knight figures that you have, all these kind of um, very uh, famous warrior figures, and the rhythm of the verse as you're reading these fight scenes, again, it's cinematic in the sense that you, the, the rhythm kind of underlies the action of what's mm-hmm. happening, and mm-hmm. as somebody falls, and you really do get wrapped up in, in the specifics of the fight, and you're kind of following it in a way that, if I'm being perfectly honest, some films haven't grabbed me in the same way as Scott's kind of description of, of these. 
but then he snaps you out of that by okay. using rhythm again to remind you that you're you're not actually entirely located there, that you're located in a different sensibility, that you're observing these scenes through. So, you know, he uses rhythm and rhyme off and rhyme schemes and rhythm to kind of move you between different temporal planes mm -hmm. and remind you where you are located as a reader in, in actually quite a mind-blowing way sometimes. Yeah. 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 Incredibly skilled. Um poet and not that yeah <laughs> I think it would be nice if we remembered him as such <laughs> do you have a, an example as well Anna or yeah, a sure. different one or so that you wanted to talk about you don't have to but you've got one I could read the beginning of that same poem with the lay of the last minstrel okay um this is a an extract that always pops up in my head when I'm trying to think of other things <laughs> so it says the way was long, the wind was cold, the minstrel was infirm and old. His withered cheek and tresses grey seemed to have known a better day. The harp his soul remaining joy was carried by an orphan boy. The last of all the bards was he who sang of border chivalry. Um, and then it goes on with this beautiful description um, of the minstrel before he then tells the story that is the rest of the poem. And I'm using this extract with the children just to introduce the idea of a mysterious character. So we're going to start with that extract and then think about what could happen to the minstrel next and who he might meet on the path and use it more like a creative writing prompt. Um, so it's full of detail and full of emotion and really great to be used in that way. It's a classic sort of quest setup, isn't it? That you exactly. get in all, all the Disney films, you know. So yeah, so I think they'll be very familiar with the idea of a mysterious mm -hmm. um, old man walking along a path, going somewhere, and, and just that rhythm again of the language and the and the imagery. It it it, it would easily capture a child's imagination, I think. Yeah, is that what you find? So. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Mm. So for you, sorry, Alison, were you about to say? I was just going to say, but the quest he's actually on is to remember how to be a minstrel and to remember how to tell stories. And by the end of the poem, he's not the last minstrel; he's the latest minstrel. You know, we have to imagine Scott's the next minstrel, and this act of storytelling has rejuvenated, mm. you know, this, the the minstrel. And and that's a kind of really modern idea as well. Mm. That it's through storytelling that we. Can can rediscover ourselves yeah absolutely that's what we're trying to do on the creative writing phds anyway. exactly <laughs> <laughs> um so you so uh, you you two guys have what a great opportunity to be part of such a, a well-funded yeah, supported project and get a chance to work with allison in the center um and it might seem people might assume you know you finish your phd and you you start straight away with the, with the scott research center but that's not quite how it happens does it and i wondered if you could both Give us a, a sort of summary of, of your journeys from, you know, bog standard, finish your PhD, and then ending up with this, th these roles that you have now. I love your confidence there. The bog standard, finish of the PhD. <laughs> <laughs> That's that easy thing that people do. Yeah, sorry, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got Take that one off. Yeah. yeah. I haven't got there yet. Just give me, give, me, give me a chance. We'll come back to you when you're finishing mm. up. <laughs> <laughs> with even less hair than I've got now. Yeah. <laughs> so... For me, I was very uh, teaching focused. I've always loved um, teaching, education, pedagogy, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So after I handed in my PhD, I did the CELTA course for teaching English as a foreign language. Mm -hmm. And I think um, 
a week after I'd actually completed everything for the PhD, I flew to Saudi Arabia and I did a year of English language teaching. Well, yeah. Um, and that was deliberate because a lot of people have told me that they, they fell into kind of a slump after their PhD and it was good to have something, something there. Um, and then I went to Japan for a semester teaching academic skills. And then Fantastic. I had enough teaching experience to get a job at a university in China um, where I stayed for two years teaching um, literature and a little bit of English language and academic skills and things like that. Um, and then I had three years as an assistant professor in Oman, um, where I focused pre uh, predominantly on literature. And then I came back and started here. Wow, so that's so been my what, journey so far. That's been fantastic, though. I mean, like, no gaps whatsoever. You're straight in and rolled with it and very adventurous, too. It's a really adventurous journey. Yeah, I knew that I didn't want to have any gaps because I thought that... Uh, yeah it would make me really depressed. So um, I sort of took everything I could. And it sounds really easy and neat looking back, but obviously that represents something like three or 400 job applications. Yeah, um, so there were a lot of job applications and a lot of things that didn't work out um, in that process. Mm -hmm. And people miss that. I think people miss the effort that goes into anything. Mm -hmm. And it seems, when you look back, it seems like a seamless, easy journey, yeah. but actually it involves all this hard work and stress and worry and, and and just constant hard work. So I was very fortunate. I went to the countries that I've always wanted to live in. Mm. Um, so people think, oh, it was easy for you. You just selected the countries and you went. <laughs> but I applied all around the world. It's just I happened to get the countries that I wanted to go to. Um, yeah, but there were a lot of job applications. I have a big rejection spreadsheet, which is just very sad to look at. Yeah. I like the idea of a spreadsheet. That's very organised. Well, it's because you find yourself applying to the same universities and you want to remember that you've applied before and see who you've interviewed with before. And Well done. So how about you, Natalie? How was your um, trajectory? Um, so after I, I finished, I... Um, I worked in student support uh, for a number of years, um, supporting autistic students, uh, undergraduate, postgraduate, mm. across uh, disciplines. So um, that was, uh, you know, the academic job market is is really tough, and um, I wasn't able to find a position within academia straight away. But I thought it was important to try and do something that was related. Mm. I was I was continuing to work in universities. I was continuing to engage with students. Um, it was really helpful during uh, COVID, actually, because I think in some ways I got um, perhaps more insight into how difficult it was for students than potentially some lecturers because I had that kind of one-on-one -on -one time with them every week and they were sort of um, telling me some of the things that they were struggling with. So I, I'm hoping that will stand me in good stead. Hopefully we'll never have to go back to that situation <laughs> again, but hopefully I'll stand me in good stead. Um, so yeah, sort of maintaining um, an academic element to my work, I suppose. But at the same time, um, I uh, continued with my own research um, any opportunity that I had to try and go on research trips. So, um, for example, um, another element of my support worker job, occasionally I would have the opportunity to go to Oxford. And so I would always make sure that I was in the Bodleian Library doing oh, my own okay. research as much as I could around my shifts. Um, and did you continue to try and publish and things like that? Yes. yes. So um, I, I stayed as active as I could within the kind of romanticism research community. Um, I, I presented at conferences. Um, I published. 
Um, and then again, there were quite a lot of online events during COVID. So that was quite useful to be able to sort of, you know, maintain um, engagement and things. Um, and then, and um, I was quite selective. So um, I, I applied for jobs that I knew I really wanted, but that's because I was fortunate enough to have a temporary day job that I genuinely loved. Yeah, <laughs> so you went desperate for the money. <laughs> I wasn't, well, I wasn't, I was really keen to sort of get started on my academic yeah, journey properly. But at the same time, I thought it was more important that my first post be something that I was genuinely really invested in rather than something that um I just took you away from your interest yeah. a little bit just for the post yeah so for me this post is perfect because um textual editing was what I wanted to do archival work um research projects is just very much um my uh in my wheelhouse and yeah and, and now I get to to work on this incredible project and spend most of my time working in libraries, which is just a dream job. <laughs> Perfect job, yeah. Um, that's, I think that's really good from both of you because like, you didn't hang around, you just you went for it, didn't you, Anna? And, and you continued to um, maintain that interest and that, that, that academic interest, excuse me, and publishing. And that I think that's important. I think people, it's so easy, I think, probably to finish a PhD and then go, ooh, what now? You know, Deliveroo. That's and me. also, yeah, I think <laughs> it's very natural to be sick of the sight of your thesis by the time yeah. you've finished. Yeah, already there. So the thought of <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the thought of having to go back to it and and find parts that can be developed into publications is probably the last thing that you want to do. But it's also the best starting point because although. Um, I got some really good advice from my from my um, previous supervisor, and he said the temptation I know is to start a brand new project, but you've done all this work, and point. you really should do something with your thesis and try and get it published in one way or another, whether that's articles or a book, before you move on to something else. And I do think that was good advice. As much as I, I was sort of sick of the sight of my thesis, um, I just I kind of didn't look at it for a month or two, and then I went back to it. Have you managed to do that? Then have you managed to translate your thesis into? Published work in one form or another. Yeah, so I've um, I've published a couple of articles on um, the the aspect of my thesis that was to do with Samuel Taylor Coleridge, um, or chapters rather in um, critical texts, and then my project at the Institute of English Studies at the moment on Shelley is kind of a development of of the part of my thesis that was on on Shelley in India, um, and then I'm kind of looking to to put together a proposal for my first book, which will incorporate aspects of the thesis as well. Great. So just get a quick sense then, you've both described your journey, but what, what years did you both uh, complete your PhD? Um, that's daunting to say. So my um, actual graduation was in 2015 okay. and my viva was in 2014. So wow. I'd say 2014 or 15, depending on... <laughs> How I feel. Yeah, I had a similar, I think my viva and submission was 2018, but I didn't graduate mm. until 2019. I think. That's good just to get that sense of, of how long it might take actually to, yeah. to land a peach job. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just going back to what you both do then, on uh, you, you know, it's, it's difficult to, you know, you talk about being in the library and archives and you, your work's slightly different, Anna, I know. Mm. Would you both be able to describe what, uh, I, t I know every day will be different probably, but what does a typical week kind of, look like for you both and what are you actually currently kind of working on mostly um so i would normally spend a quite a large portion of my week in a library or or an archive especially at the moment so um 
the next volume due for publication, um, some of the work that needs to be done for that volume at the moment involves looking at uh, Scott's manuscript letters and kind of comparing lines of verse that appear in the letters with um, the printed version of the letters. And uh, so that obviously you have to be in the library that holds the manuscript. It's not something that you can do remotely. Um, the brilliant thing about that is it means that I sometimes get to travel. So I recently went to the Royal College of Surgeons Library in London mm -hmm. um, to look at, you know, four Scott letters, but it was <laughs> necessary and therefore... Um, you, have to, you have to wear the white gloves and everything. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, so no. white gloves are... Um, yes, this is a common... <laughs> <laughs> don't know why I don't know why I've yeah. cool. for television, yes. I think. <laughs> it's quite the controversial issue with uh, archivists... <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yes, actually, white gloves um, means that you don't have as much. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, you're, you're, you're clumsy. You're clumsy. Oh, okay. you're so it's more, you're more likely to. But yeah. you're more likely to damage it. You could potentially yeah. Yeah, break the, the corner of a page mm. or something. So it's more about restricting handling rather than um, yes. protecting any, any kind of contact. Yes, so mm. you'd want to have um, clean and dry hands and be using um, a book rest and snake weight so that you're touching the pages as that's little as possible. Well. <laughs> I thought it was interesting. Just so you know. <laughs> no, that's all right. And acid-free paper to and follow acid the lines. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, and sometimes to interleave so that you can actually read because... Um, Sometimes uh, things are written on, on two sides of the page, it's quite difficult to read. And then there's that wonderful cross-hatching that, because manuscript uh, paper and, and ink was quite expensive. So you sometimes come across letters where they have written from left to right across the page, and then they turn the page and they write Wow. In the other way, so you've got this called cross-hatching handwriting, and then on both sides of the page. <laughs> thankfully, I have yet to have to decide for one of those. Scott doesn't actually do that very often, but yeah, other, his, his friends do. His friends do. <laughs> Are there any? Do you ever find any? Sorry to jump in again. Do you ever find any verse in in letters that have never made it to publication? Yes. Yeah. yeah well, that must be um, quite ex mm -hmm. exciting, I guess. Yeah. Um. So, so some of the things for David Hewitt's volume, um, have never been have never been published outside of the printed letters. Is that right? Ali? Well, that's right. And there are letters that have never been printed yes. as well. So there's verse within letters that have never been printed. Yes. Yeah. Um, so it's... Uh, yeah, so sorry, back to the, your original question of how my week looks. Yes, so, sorry, yeah. No, it's, it's okay. I've sent, sent you off track. Forgotten what I was talking about. Asking about, <laughs> asking about white gloves and random facts. So. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah. So, yes, a big portion of my week is working in, in libraries, in archives, with manuscripts or... Um, collating two versions of um, a published poem. So, for example... Um, at the moment, I'm looking at the um, the eighth edition of the Lay of the Last Minstrel and um, comparing it to the first edition and yeah. looking for any differences, um, anything from you know added uh, lines to um, a semicolon instead of a comma. How do you decide? That's quite a responsibility. Well, yeah. I just record it all. I you record it. Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> that's um, Ali will do, get to make those decide? decisions. <laughs> I mean, we always kind of say when you're collating, we, we, we always have a standard, what we call a standard of collation, which is normally the first edition. And we compare everything else to that standard of collation. And while you, so that would be the manuscript proofs and editions published in Scott's lifetime. And while you're doing that, 
obviously you can't suspend your thinking process, but, you know, not to try and decide whether it's textually significant while you're doing it, just record. And then mm. a set, as a separate process to put all those things beside each other and look at them mm. and work out what's textually significant. Yeah, it's just like a disciplined you know, process, of course. So yeah. it's a very disciplined process. And, and the aim is to try and restore what the author um, intended to write in the sense not of meaning and intentionality in that sense, but in terms of you know, what they actually wanted published. So, you know, sometimes that will come down to a word in the manuscript that's just been misread mm -hmm. because Scott's handwritings are not always the easiest. Well, he clearly intended this word and somebody's misread it as something. So it's that kind of intentionality. But you gather all that evidence. You gather the evidence about the publishing history of the text and what's going on around that. And then you make um, decisions about what you should be doing to provide the best possible text. And all textual editing is quite rule governed. So, you know, we have an editorial policy that runs to nearly 50 pages, which really is a rule book and says, you know, you can make changes to this. What you can't do is just make a change because you think I like that better than that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you have to say I'm making that change because I think something went wrong between. So these are well-established, laid down well, protocols for this kind of research? Um, or, well, or every edition should establish its own or, protocols okay. based on the particular circumstances of the author. Mm -hmm. But there are also, you know, lots of theories around textual editing that, that help you to establish those protocols. So are you formulating those, um, those kind of, that kind of guidance for each volume? No, we did it before. The, we, we had a guidance, um, the Guide for Editors for the edition of the Waverley Novels, mm -hmm which had taken years to develop before anything was published. Our pilot projects and Ainsley Malkintosh's work was about okay, yeah. getting to the point. So really you want to have that formulated before you publish anything. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of volumes, such as the volume that Natalie's um, helping David Hewitt with at the moment, which maybe require some tweaking to the editorial policy because of their particular circumstances. But as far as possible, you want your policy well established, which is one of the challenges with a project like this is you have to do a lot of work before you ever publish anything um, and to make sure you're in a good position before you start. And actually, in modern academic life, that's hard because ref, you know, publish, <laughs> publish, publish. Oh, okay. And so you've almost to buy yourself the time by publish. Well, I published lots of articles during that ref cycle <laughs> so that I had a ref hand because I knew I wasn't going to get any of this really meaty stuff published because, you know, that was going to take time. Yeah. So, you know, it's like seeing your academic career as a whole, I think, is really important if you want to do a big project like this. OK, so... So archive-based mostly, mostly, Natalie. But then also some of my um, the work that I do is to sort of contribute to this supporting material that we, we would provide in the edition. So um, going through the poems and trying to um, find any, you know, from terms that need um, expert definition, um, because it's not just as simple as looking it up in a dictionary, um, to historical events that might require some context in order for a modern reader to understand, um, to Scott's wonderful extensive um, notes which he provides okay. to his poems and are almost as long as the poems themselves, <laughs> I would say, um, in which he, he does sometimes provide explanation for what's going on in the text, but he often also 
um, talks about things that interest him or that might have um, something in the text has maybe reminded him of something that he <laughs> wants to talk about. He quotes from texts um, that he's read and texts in his library. Um, it kind of, it's, it's almost like a parallel narrative to the poem itself. Um, but the notes require quite a lot of uh, um, supporting material in order to be able to trace um, the different sources or, or the you know the people that are being referred to the texts that are being referred to, um, so so that's another big part of my job, and again um, I think a, a really good decision that was made for this edition is that um, the supporting material it we're not going to um, veer into the realm of sort of pr trying to impose our own interpretation okay. upon the text we're just trying to provide all the information that a modern reader needs so a reader can make their own and make their own yeah judgments yeah that's great what they're reading. Yeah. do you feel you're getting closer to scott do you feel like he's he's materializing out of the out of the past for you a bit more certainly i don't know if my um imagined version of him is anything <laughs> like what he actually was um but he's sort of like this avuncular uncle who has an amazing library and we just sort of have cups of tea and talk about weird books <laughs> okay. that's who he is in my head yeah, that sounds, sounds <laughs> <good>. <laughs> but that's probably because i spend a great deal of my time looking at what he was reading and trying yeah. to sort of get into his kind of his thought process and he's such a multifaceted you know character there's there's so many different sides to his personality but um, Scott, as sort of as reader and scholar and poet, those are kind of the, the, the aspects of him that I'm most interested in. At the moment, mm -hmm. Great, thank you. And Anna, so um, just your, your working week, I know you're taking some of the material and putting it uh, out into a, to, towards new audiences. So is that what you spend the majority of your time? Yes, so my work is very different. So I'm creating resources for primary six, primary seven, secondary one and secondary two okay. pupils. Um, my role is 50% of full time, so I'm not here all the time. And so far, I've been rereading the poems and creating resources and tying them in to the curriculum for excellence um, that obviously the schools will be following. And I'm just at the stage now where I'm hoping to take these resources into schools mm -hmm. and trial them and see how the children respond, whether the teachers like them, uh, whether the teachers think they're meeting the, yeah. the right levels or they are at the right levels. Um, so Ali and I are actually going to the Association of Scottish Literature's Teachers Conference uh, on Saturday. And we're hopefully going to be showing what I've done so far to teachers and asking them for some feedback and asking them if we can try all the resources in their schools. Um, so very different very to different. the work that Nettle is Quite doing. daunting as well, but also quite exciting, I would imagine. Yeah, very exciting. And they are lovely, lovely to hear as well how, how the centre and how academia is is, um, is communicating with the, with, the, with the wider world and community and community engagement, which I think is great. So your working week then, I mean, what kind of material are you, are you taking uh, pu published Scott work that's in the domain or are you using archives or? So I'm not using any archives at all for this role. Um, so I'm, as I said earlier, part of what I've been doing is selecting extracts okay. that I think will work for, well yeah. um, with children and also that will tie in with the Curriculum for Excellence. There's quite a lot in the Curriculum for Excellence about understanding um, information that's just or inferring information from text and understanding different perspectives. And those are things that Scott is great for, particularly the perspectives. He often writes things from slightly different angles or kind of shifts. Um, 
so I'm picking up on on those needs or those requirements, matching them to the texts um, that have already been published. So um, when, yes, at the moment I'm using the editions that are currently available yeah, yeah, and okay. then as the new editions that comes out, yeah. then I will be kind of shifting um, things across. So you say it's a 50% commitment. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, how do you use the other 50% or do you just like to take a breather? I wish I could say that yeah. I just watch TV. <laughs> um, that would be so really amazing. No. One of the busiest people you could care to meet, is that? And <laughs> um, so I have my own research as well. Okay. So like Natalie, I've been publishing um, some of the, the articles based on my PhD, some of them slightly different Um all on Walter Scott, actually. I think everything I've published has been on Walter Scott. Um, I also teach for a couple of other universities online. And I have a few other kind of small roles here and there, doing some tutoring and some research for some other groups. And I have a storytelling business. Right. So this week I've been uh, on a ship storytelling called The Lady of Avenel, which of course is a name from Walter Scott. So I've been on this this ship telling everybody wow. about Walter Scott and trying to read them extracts from uh, the novel that the name is from. Um, so I work quite a lot with children through my storytelling, which I think um, helps for this role. Absolutely. Yeah. is the perfect person for yeah. the job. Yeah. Yes. Walter Scott and children. Yeah. <laughs> and teaching. And teaching. And teaching. Yeah. teaching. Yeah. don't know how you find the time. I'm struggling just with the PhD, so. Um, so how do you, how, on that, how do you both balance your the demands of this project and the other things that you're involved with? Um, so I suppose with because my research outside of the of the Edinburgh edition of um, Walter Scott's poetry project is also um, quite archival and library based. Um, it's quite complementary, so uh, it's. I feel as though the skills that I'm developing um, within my role at the Walter Scott Research Centre are helping me with um, my my other research and kind of also the other way around. I think the skills that I was developing with my other research helped me to get this okay. job and, and, and um, meant that I had the foundation to kind of do uh, the textual editing work that needs to be mm. done in the edition. So I'm quite fortunate in that my own research and this research, I think, is quite complementary. Work in parallel. Whereas yeah. yours, Anna, it sounds a bit more diverse the different activities the different focuses of what you do yes but i think everything does come together sometimes in unexpected mm -hmm. ways and you think oh there's a connection there or you know like this week when i've been storytelling and i've ended up talking about walter scott um and trying to help people recognize him for you know the great writer that he actually was <laughs> um <laughs> as opposed to being a statue in edinburgh yes, yes. <laughs> um so you, you do have those connections um, in terms of balancing it all, I don't have a secret formula for doing that. Um, in a way, because I'm 50% of full time, for this role, it is based on hours. So I can physically come to the office for the hours that I'm working. And that helps. Compartmentalize. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then all the other roles will get muddled and mixed in um, with each other. <laughs> That's a way, yeah. yeah. 
I think when you start working on Scott, the trouble is you see Scott everywhere mm -hmm. because Scott's so much part of the landscape, particularly mm -hmm. in Scotland, that, mm -hmm. you know, your brain never seems to be able to be completely away from Walter <laughs> Scott because you think, oh, here's a £10 banknote. It's I mean, got it's, Walter Scott. <laughs> it's probably worth mentioning that he, he invented the, the romantic novel in a way. Uh, or it's um, one of the key... key he, oh, that... Yeah, key romantic figure. Both, I think... Certainly, uh, you know, the romantic novel is a slightly strange beast, actually, because often when people think of romanticism, they think primarily about poetry. Mm. Um, and so the novel is that he, he invents, he doesn't exactly invent the historical novel, but he certainly refines the historical novel into the form that, um, that we recognise today. And, you know, um, you know, that we've heard about the sad death of Hilary Mantel yes, in, in the yeah. in the past few days. And, and certainly she writes about Scott tradition. and the yeah. role of Scott mm -hmm. in the historical novel. And, you know, also is quite instrumental in developing a form of novel about national identity or nationhood and the relationship between history and the present mm -hmm. that then gets, you know, reused um, all over Europe and, and North America as well. So, you know, it's it's he is quite a significant figure. I, I hope the poetry edition also, though, does in some ways reinsert him back into the more... I don't want to say mainstream romantic discourse, six, but, suppose, you know, there it? is the sense of the big six, which yeah. we've been trying to move away from mm. in romantic studies, you know, basically dead white males. And <laughs> uh, Scott's another dead white male, but he's a slightly different kind of Scottish dead white male, you know. Mm. So I think the more we can do to disrupt that version of romanticism, yeah. but also by doing that, actually... Um, remind people that that's what it looked like for the people who were there at the time, you know, that we've been very selective in our version of romanticism. And, you know, hopefully also we have um, PhD students looking at sort of Scots female contemporaries and mm -hmm. things as well, yeah. which I think is important. And that, another thing that sets Scott apart really is he was hugely encouraging of his, his female contemporaries and didn't seem to sort of see them as inferior writers mm -hmm. in any way, which mm -hmm. is... Refreshing and lovely and just another reason why we like yeah. Scott so much. <laughs> I mean, in fact, he says, you know, that what he's trying to do is is um, emulate Mariah Edgeworth and what she's done for yeah, Ireland, right, yeah. for Scotland. So he's taken a woman writer as, as one with, of his yeah. models and saying, you know, I wish I could do that, which I think is, you know, very refreshing. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks very much for such a brilliant insight from the three of you into, into what you do and... We could go on talking for a long time, I think. And if anyone hasn't read any Scott, it's, it's worth reading. And yeah. uh, you've got three good advocates for Scott here today. And I think we'd also say, if MD wants to come and speak to us about Scott, oh. we're in the old brewery. Yeah. You know, do come and speak to us. We're always delighted to speak about Scott. There you go. Okay. You heard it here. Um, yes. And thank you for having us. Thank no, you. you're welcome. welcome. <laughs> thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for your time. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.